North Hollywood. I used to go to the one in Glendale, which was awful because you couldn't park and the people were just old and they walked slow. It was just disgusting. But this one over here in North Hollywood, is it's so good. I go in there at least once a week and Joanne cracks up. She's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to the 99 cent store because they have the most interesting stuff. I get these pretzels. They're like Philadelphia soft pretzels in a box and they come every once in a while and they're a buck. And well, the thing is, the problem is 99 cent store says it's 99 cents, but it's 99.9 cents. So it's technically the dollar store. Then you add a dime for tax for a lot of stuff. So it's a dollar ten. But I got to tell you, I get these pretzels and they're so good. And because you have to watch my soda. Sodium, they're like 170 milligrams of sodium unless you put that crappy salt on it look reminds me of like the east coast salt we put on sidewalks to, to melt the snow you put this salt on and it goes up to like 900 milligrams of sodium but i get them i got ice cream i got and it's ice cream from christmas because it was like candy cane ice cream and eggnog ice cream but you don't care because it's ice cream so if you get a chance just go to the 99 cent store and walk around there's a lot of bad item bad items like there's like you know all the jesus candles and like stuff you're not gonna get but they have good utensils like you know spatulas and stuff like that and just look for those pretzels because they're so good anyway we have a great show uh, we have uh, my guest actually just took a long trip across the country my guest is uh, peter murnick how you doing peter i'm very well how are you good so now you're you're you, i know you're from uh concord mass originally that's were, correct were you back there visiting or were you back there for work or what were you doing actually my dad lives in reed city michigan so i thought i would take a nice cruise across the country and check in with him and spend some time there now, is it the first time you've driven across country? No, I've done it before. I actually did it with my daughter when she was three and a half years old. And uh, I bought a big giant. I've been in the classic car business on the side for quite a while. And I bought a gigantic 1971 Plymouth Fury Custom Suburban nine-passenger wagon that was just as big as a whale. And uh, my daughter and I drove it across country when she was still in a car seat. And it was just paradise. Was it? I mean, because I know when we were kids. We would drive everywhere. I grew up in New Jersey and we would go to vacation in Florida, you know, and it's so funny because my parents would get like, we'd stay to Epcot Center, you know, but they couldn't, they could spring for the nice hotel, but they never sprung for the uh, flight. So we'd be sitting there and we drive when well, there's three of us. But when you're a kid, it seems like such an eternity. I mean, I'm sure for your daughter, it must have been because you're three and a half and you don't really have a concept of distance. So, I mean, was, was she going like, was she patient in the car? Cause I mean, that's a long run. It's a very long run. And I was so concerned because, uh, we left from Michigan and I strapped her into her car seat and I, it suddenly dawned on me and what I was doing. And I thought, oh man, if this kid starts crying now, I am screwed. Right. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be looking for an airport. And uh, really it was funny because even at that young age, she just got right into that really spaced out, trippy, meditative road trip head and uh, started asking me these weird philosophical questions. You know, we bought sunglasses at the gas stations and cruised along and snacks and whatnot. And it was paradise. We had a great time. Her one request was that we stayed at motels that had swimming pools. And I said, man, I'm all right. That's what I want too. So yeah, it's, it's cool. And it is, vacations are so cool. Cause I mean, it's just, it's your family and just driving. And it is, I mean, I drove across country with my ex-wife when I moved out here with a U-Haul, which was a pain in the ass. Cause you're always worried. You're like this U-Haul connected. And I had a uh, Toyota Celica. So it's not like a Celica. I mean, yeah. Ambitious. It was, it was a small U-Haul, but you're driving. We went through like Texas and then I made a wrong turn and I had to turn around and I don't know anything about trucks. I mean, you probably, cause you, you're a classic car guy. You probably know how a car, the intricates of a car. I can't even draw a stick. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to turn around and I can't turn around with a U-Haul and it was awful. Learning to drive with a trailer is a bitch. And I there's just no two ways about it. <laughs> so now, now you grew up in mass, right? That's correct. Okay. Now you're a big guy, you're tall. So how did you end up getting that? When you were a kid, did you want to act or did you want to play basketball or what, what was your aspirations when you in elementary and junior high? I mean, what made you get into this acting thing? You know, it's something that you do Really, growing up in New England, being an actor is more of a gentleman's hobby. I remember seeing 
my pediatrician and my dentist were both on the cast of a play at the local playhouse. So it's really something that people do as a sideline and just for enjoyment and whatnot. And uh, it never really occurred to me as something you could do for a living. Obviously, I mean, I, I liked movies and I like movie stars and I enjoyed it on that level, but I never really thought about something I could participate in. And then I had the opportunity to come out for the summer in 1985. Uh, I'd been living in Maine and I'm doing some theater there and working in a deli. And uh, I had the opportunity to come out and study with Peggy Fury and Bill Trailer at the Loft Studio. Out here? Out here. Okay, now had you been to L.A. before? I had not. Well, so, actually, I did once in eighth grade just for a few days, but uh, on a trip. How did an opportunity arise where you could come out here? I mean, was it did someone see you in Maine? I mean, because Maine's a different area. I don't... It certainly is. Uh, I was dating Peggy Fury's daughter, Susan Trailer, at the time. She was at NYU, and I had gone to Boston University. We met when I was there. And uh, I was going back and forth to New York quite a bit to see her. And I met uh, Peggy Fury and Bill Trailer, Susan's parents, uh, on an Easter vacation there in New York City. And they invited me out. And so I had, you know, a place to stay. And when I got to the Loft Studio at uh, La Brea and Second, there was, you know, Sean Penn was there. Angelic Houston was there. Uh, Nicholas Cage and Matthew Modine were working on their stuff for Birdie. Uh, Meg Ryan had just exploded. So uh, it was really daunting to be in the presence of these people that I'd only seen on screen. But uh, I, it set the hook for me. And I really thought, wow, these people do this for a living big time. And I fell in love with living in California. So I never went back. I, I, I never returned after the summer. I love the movie Birdie. A lot of people haven't seen it. I thought that was such a great movie. And it's one of those like, cages before he started getting the crazy hair and all that stuff, you know. And yeah. it's just so good. And Matthew Modine is such a great actor who is so underrated in my eyes. But it was just, it was one of those movies that you watch it and it took close place in Philadelphia and then Jersey Shore, which I grew up going to. So I appreciated right. it more. Well, I was also someone from Boston, the, the, Massachusetts. You probably knew like Cape Cod and different areas. So you can appreciate that. So now was, was acting your major in B, at BU? Actually, it wasn't. I was an art history major with an economics minor. And, uh, you know, I had dreams of possibly owning a gallery or getting into the art dealing business or something like that, because that was one thing that I really enjoyed growing up in New England was art and art history. And there's so many great museums there. And, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really found my calling. I wasn't sure. I was I was in some senses going through the motions. But uh, when I got here and I saw that people were doing it for a living and it really, really took a hold of me. So you're a young guy. Yep. You move out here and it's 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 a scary move, especially I'm sure growing up, you know, back east. And now I always wonder, because this was how many years ago? Well, that was 1985. Okay. So it was quite a while. I was 19 years old. So I always wonder, especially when you're 19 years old, you're coming out here. Where was the first place you lived? Because this area, LA has changed so much. I mean, I know I live I lived in Burbank for since I've pretty much been here. I lived in Westwood for a little bit and Hollywood for a little bit. But I know before I moved to Burbank, they used to say like the downtown, it was grass. Like there was there wasn't the mall, you know. And you know, I'm sure Magnolia, which you're familiar now, you see the rubber stamp shop and all these places that you go, what the hell are the how are these even open? It's probably because they own the business because I don't see a lot of people buying rubber stamps. No. But now when you came out, it must have been such a different town. Where did you live and did you get recommended? Because I know you stayed with the Furies at first, but I'm sure they didn't say, hey, just come in and move with us. I mean, you had to find a place. So where was your first place? They actually did have oh, me really? move in with them and they were very generous and super, super gracious and really supportive. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you some sob story about living on the beach in Venice in a van or anything like that. I lived in Bel Air at their okay. home, so <laughs> I had that. But things quickly shifted uh, when I decided to stay. Obviously, I needed to find my own place, and uh, I lived right in West Hollywood on Curson Avenue with some really great friends who I met through the nightclub business, and 
you know, it was a really funny conglomeration of people, primarily from Brooklyn, who came out to be stuntmen. Okay. And so we had this crazy bungalow with a skate ramp in the front yard, and there were boa constrictors on the floor, and motorcycles going through the house in the middle of the night and stuff like that. It was really, really fun. Are you a skater? Because I saw your vans. So. Yeah, I am a skater. Uh, I was a real street skater. It's evolved so much since the time that I sort of hung it up. But uh yeah, I was once on the Boston Globe for going down all the stairs at Government Center, and uh, I could street skate. You know, that's what my friends and I would do. We would just go from one end of Boston to the other, all the way across Concord, Massachusetts. That was a mode of transportation and a lot of fun. See, that's cool, though, because I know I used to work with a guy who said one of the first skate parks was in my hometown, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And he's, he would grow up out here. He's like, oh, yeah, when I go see my mom in Cherry Hill, I go there. So you, you get your own place. And you, you're done. You're not. Are you done studying with Fury, or, or do you... I stayed for a while, and then uh, unfortunately, Peggy Fury died that fall in an accident in uh, on an accident on Sepulveda Boulevard. She had a head-on collision that killed her, and then uh, after that, I stayed for a while and studied with Bill, and then he got sick and passed away not long after. So your teachers are are now, uh, which sucks. They they passed away, and, and there was probably more than teachers are confidence because they brought you in. Yeah. And so, but now you're in this place. So now as an actor, do you sit there? Do you go looking for another acting teacher? Did you have an agent yet? Or what, what do you do? Because you're a young actor who's out here new. And even though you're with them, you're taking classes and you're taking classes with these heavy hitters, which is awesome. But what do you do as then as an actor? Where do you go? Well, there was some time off there where I just needed to survive, you know, because suddenly I was no longer living in Bel Air. I was living on a couch and, uh, I worked at a thrift store called Aardvarks on Melrose, and that was really fun. That's I met still open, is uh, You know, I don't think it is. I, I don't believe it's under the same ownership, but it was a really amazing experience, you know, and a lot of celebrities and stuff would come in there. I would find leather jackets for Adam Ant, and Michael Jackson even came in one day with his mask on. And uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun working there and a great group of guys that I'm still friends with that work there. And bit by bit, uh, you know, I started going out to... Uh, Art Center College of Design to model for one of their photography classes and met some photographers like Dewey Nix, Paul Jasmine, and bit by bit, it sort of morphed into a more of a modeling thing because I was young and pretty. And then, uh, and tall, what are you, tall. six, four, six, five. Okay. Yeah. I always, you know, what's funny. I, I've had a few actors in comics that come into your height and I always, we talked about the picture. I always look like a dwarf next to you guys. I always sit there and then, you know, I always get like some of them, they, they crouch down. I'm like, oh, don't crouch. Cause you make me look shorter. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like awful. It's like, you, I mean, it's must be crazy. I mean, six, five. I mean, you worked at Aardvarks, which is, but was it hard for you to find clothes growing up? Not really. You know, I, I I was young. I was only 12 years old when I went to high school and I was five foot three. And then when I graduated at 17, I was six foot three. Oh, wow. So I had an older brother and I got a lot of hand-me-downs, but uh, it wasn't that difficult, you know, staying dressed or anything. And, and working at Aardvarks was great because when I first started going on modeling calls or on auditions for commercials, it was like having the greatest wardrobe in the, in the world. You know, you could just pick out you know, all sorts of period costumes or military stuff or whatever you needed. So it was paradise. Isn't it amazing how the thrift store still have changed like I used to go to one in New Jersey and no one went to them and back then still people were like the hip people were going to and there wasn't hipsters so the hip the hip concentration was like 10% you know and no one thought they were hip they said okay you know we're gonna wear a polo shirt you know how it is I mean it must be crazy for you because you see how everyone all the thrift stores have just blown up and you were I mean you were in the forefront I mean you were like when hip was hip like thrift stores aren't hip anymore like there's one down the street here I would stop at because possibly I could find an ugly blazer no one's gonna go to the thrift store on Burbank Boulevard in Burbank. Yeah. But it must be way crazy if you ever go by a thrift store now how big it's become. It's unbelievable. And really, you know, I've been working in Salt Lake City for the past few years and there are sensational thrift stores there. 
And it's so much fun to go out there. And Parker Posey, who I work with on Granite Flats, is an avid, avid thrift store person. And man, if you go to a thrift store with Parker Posey, you better pack a lunch because you're going to be there for a while. She looks like that, like just from her role. She just said, because she's, and she's been around for a long time. She's always played those quirky roles. Like she's someone who I sit there and go, okay, she can go to a thrift store. But some kid in, uh, you know, wearing a beanie in Silver Lake with a beard when it's 100, you can't go in thrift stores. You're it's, not allowed. It's true. It's true. So you're, you're doing the thrift store and then you're taking little classes. Now, when do you, when, when do you start pursuing an agent when you start pursuing work well it did it, it as i was saying it kind of morphed through modeling because i was driving dewey nicks one time to present some photographs that he had taken to a, a modeling agent named omar alberto who at the time was working at a company called east west and i was just dewey's ride because you know back then we had 200 cars and 400 apartments and stuff like that and omar came out to greet dewey and he looked at me and said hey who's this who's this and uh, so that sort of started things rolling and he got me started working uh, as a model and then that led to commercials and so i was able to pursue a commercial agent and you know that's back then that was great money yeah what, what were some of the commercials you've done uh, i've done you know probably 100 commercials but you know back in the day if you did dodge trucks michelob beer uh sprite you know you were making a hundred thousand dollars a year and as a kid that's amazing i, I always say that because i was talking to a friend of mine did a big uh this guy steve neal did this dodge to durango campaign a few years ago and there was like probably 12 years ago or 15 years ago, there's five of them that ran. And I was like, okay, he just made cash. And they're all during football season they played. Right. And now it's changed, I believe. Well, it's changed a lot, you know, partly with the advent of cable television, which has really exploded in the past 30 years. Uh, you know, there's different pricing for a commercial that they run on cable versus what they do on network TV. Back then, it was just 65 bucks a pop every time you saw it on TV. And they were making it, you know, running it around the clock and you'd go to your mailbox and suddenly there's a check for five grand. Of... <laughs> <That's> much... <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so, so you're doing that and now you're making the commercial, but I'm sure, you know, because you like you loved acting, I'm sure you wanted to also branch back into acting because commercial acting is great for the money, but it's not really acting. So what did, so I mean, so you're doing the commercials. Were you afraid you get pigeonholed in commercials or did your commercial agent introduce you to another agent or how'd that work? I was able to meet a woman named Bonnie Owens who was an agent at William Morris. And so I was able to sign with her and start going out theatrically. And that was just a great relationship that lasted for 17 years until she died. You know, there seems to be a... <laughs> I just, God, you know, it's I, tough. I, I'm worried that you're on my show this week. I'm going to tell my <laughs> girlfriend. Worry, I don't think it's my doing. <laughs> so, so, okay, so you're going out now. Your first role, and your first role was in a series called TV 101. Is that, is that what you That's first right. Role? I had a little guest starring on TV 101 right around the same time I did. Uh, I was the cop in Father of the Bride, which is really funny because now I work with George Newbern. Uh, who played the groom and uh, mostly smaller independent films, a thing called pastime that did well at Sundance. Uh, you know, I just started piecing it together and then getting more into the network television shows. And I worked, uh, I was hired by Stephen J. Cannell to do a really funny pilot called Thunderboat Row, which was kind of like the mod squad in speedboats down in Miami, which was a lot of fun to work on, but didn't go anywhere. Now what's that? I mean, that must be a great feeling though. I mean, to get a pilot, I mean, just the fact that you're working. I mean, I always say, you know, people, you know, come on and they say how well, I was in this pilot, it didn't get picked up and this, but the whole, the whole, it's such an accomplishment to get a pilot. And it's such a, as you, I, you know, I talk to people that say it's, it's a luck of the draw, what pilot gets picked up and stuff like that. Now it's better because there's so many different outlets, you know, like Granite Flats and different shows. And, you know, you can, you can get different things on Amazon, Hulu, there's all the different things. Right. When that pilot was, so you got the pilot, were you very excited? I mean, were you disappointed when it didn't get picked up or were you like at, well, I was crushed when it didn't get picked up, of course, because, uh, you know, shooting in Miami was so much fun. And, you know, we got to ride around in boats and cars and this and that. And it was just such a high dollar experience compared to the other stuff that I'd done. 
but I, I was thrilled to get it, you know, and when you go for a network pilot and you have to test repeatedly for an ever expanding group of producers and writers and whatnot, it's a very grueling experience and really nerve wracking. I mean, I wish I was in the headspace that I am now where I don't get nervous anymore and I'm not all up in my head. I mean, back then it was, you know, deep breathing exercises and sweaty palms out in the hall. Now you're doing the pilots and then Seinfeld comes along, yeah. which is just, you know, people don't know the magnitude when I talk about TV, because as you said, it was a lot different then. It was, there wasn't a lot of networks. Seinfeld was a huge show and you were on two episodes and you were the, and you're a very memorable character. I mean, you're, everyone remembers that character because you're yelling at Kramer and it's just a great character. And now how did that audition, did, did that take a while? Were you a fan of Seinfeld or were you familiar with the show or you just went in blind? That was the season opener for their second season okay. and they knew they had a hit on their hands and they'd been picked up, I think for more than just the second season. I think they bought them for two or three right there on the, uh, on the spot, given the hit, uh, given the success of the first season. I still scratch my head. How did I even get into that room? How did I, and I was a younger man and now, and I was auditioning against guys that are the age I am now. I'm almost 50 years old. And so it was a lot of older salt and pepper guys playing this, you know, trying to play the role of that crusty detective. And just, I just had such intensity. It was so much fun to do. And somehow I bagged that. You know? Now that's a role you probably get recognized to this day from. Just... To this day. I was just in Michigan at a barbecue, having just gone to hunt for morel mushrooms in the woods. And a guy looked at me and said, Seinfeld, that's all I can see right now. See, that's so <laughs> funny because it, it, Seinfeld is on so much. I mean, and that's the thing. And it's now, do you get residuals for that? God bless it. Yes, I do. I mean, it's unbelievable. Because, uh, yeah, because I sit there because my girlfriend's a big Seinfeld fan and I'll just like flip around and I'll sit there. You know, when, there's that time where they say, oh, what's on TV? Oh, my God, Seinfeld. And even though you've seen it, you can watch them over and over. And that's like, so people, I mean, have people just, come up to you out of the blue and said sign beside like have people just come up to you yeah a lot of people came up and just said i know you i know you and that's gone on for years and years and you know and the checks they're not the size they were at the beginning but between that and armageddon i mean it's just unbelievable that that residual action really keeps us journeymen alive now after seinfeld because it's a known show and the industry watched it mm -hmm. did you get more auditions did you notice something that people said okay this guy peter mernick we uh we saw him on seinfeld when you go in i'm sure there's a different a different reaction. If a guy's a big Seinfeld fan, of course, he's going to be excited to meet you, even though he may be a huge producer. He's probably like, oh, my God, you were great. Did you feel doors opening because of that? I did, you know, and I noticed and a lot more playing law enforcement and stuff like that that uh, that really stemmed from doing that role. And it was just a great boost at a great time. And there were still, you know, there were a lot of opportunities on the ground then for people in my age range and everything and it was just it was really really fun we well, did so you did the er and you did till death was part and a bunch of different stuff and you were so you were going out for auditions now were you booking any pilots at this time or is it just auditions not really you know i didn't really have a lot of success with pilots and uh you know i auditioned i tested a few times and things like that but it just wasn't really going my way there was a long period of time there where friends was the thing you know and everybody was like oh you got to go on this on this audition it's going to be the next friends it's going to be the next friends and you know no disrespect but i never really cared for friends and it didn't, you know, that wasn't something that really whetted my appetite. I was pretty happy to just to do a real journeyman's thing. You know, I had commercials that kept me fed and kept my rent paid. And then I was able to pop around and do smaller movies like It's My Party and things like that. You know, dramatic roles that I cared about, commercials that were just fun to do. And uh, It's My Party. Is that with uh, Gregory Harrison and Eric yeah, Roberts? Yeah, directed by Randall Kleiser. Yeah. yeah. Gregory Harrison was on my show. I was, I was like so intimidated because I'm like, oh my God, it's Trapper John. You know, it's like I'm 51. So I was like, everyone, you know, you meet some people. It's like when Robbie Benson was on, I'm like, oh my God, it's Robbie Benson. Unbelievable. You know? So now, now, now you went from your ER, you were going to back from dramas and comedy because you did Seinfeld. What did you, did you feel 
confident smoothing back and forth or did you feel stronger in one suit? I feel much more comfortable working without a live audience. I'll say that. And a lot of the stuff that you shoot for sitcoms is a three camera setup with a live audience and somebody, you know, a comedian out there trying to keep the audience aroused and whatnot. And uh, that's never been my forte. And I never really thought that 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 style of writing where every other line is a punchline and you're expecting the rim shot, it just never really appealed to me. It's not something that I watch. And so I was I was much happier working on dramas. Now, how did Armageddon come about? Was that just something? Because, I mean, I'm sure everyone was cat like Bruce Willis. But I mean, it's like when you sit there, it's a stellar cast. And as an actor, I mean, and you must have you must have had. Oh, some confidence because one you had a pilot already and two you got cast in Seinfeld against but you know against a bunch of old guys so they must have really liked you so you pro- and you had the commercials yeah. so you probably weren't as worried as much but did you know who was all cast in Armageddon when you went or what what how that happened I didn't really have a sense of how huge it was until I got there and it came about because I'd shot a lot of commercials with Michael Bay and Michael Bay and I are friendly and uh and Lisa Fields who did you know 90% of his casting at the time he really reached out to a lot of people that were sort of in his stable at that time we'd go from commercial to commercial to commercial and uh and he reached out to a lot of us and said, hey you know I got this this movie I'm doing and there's this mission control room and I need guys and so if you look around in that room there's a lot of guys that shot commercials with Michael Bay and that was just fun it went on for a month there in that uh that studio there at Sony Pictures over in West LA and it was just a paradise to work on. What's it like, I mean, going onto a set where it it's a huge budget. And as I said, there's huge stars. I mean, I know you're in a control room, so you probably didn't really interact with Bruce Willis and stuff like that. But I mean, did you meet them at all? You know, I did. And and frankly, I had so much fun hanging out with those people. And that was kind of an eye opener as well to be in the work environment. But to realize is as soon as they yell cut, everybody's goofing around. Everybody's having a good time. And, you know, they're terrific people to hang out with there. Chris Ellis is a, one of my favorite actors. And he was in there. And, uh, you know, Billy Bob Thornton is cool as a cucumber. And, and Bruce Willis was really cool to hang out with. Liv Tyler had me cracking her back all the time because I'm pretty good at uh, a little chiropractic adjustment. So it was really, really fun to hang out. It must have been also been great because it's in, it shoots in L.A. So, you know, it's a thing like you, you have to go to Utah and stuff like that. And people have to go, especially now, because so much stuff is shot away from L.A. Yeah. It must, I mean, of course, when we go into Miami, it's great because it's, it's Miami and yeah. you're, you're on a TV show. It's like, like yeah. I always thought when they, I used to live in San Diego when they shot silk stockings that show oh yeah that must have been great because it's like you're in san diego shooting a tv show and you're not gonna make it go back and forth from la every day so it must have been great so armageddon gets done and now people start recognizing you from that mm-hmm. i mean is it does that and because you're taller they probably recognize you a lot easier as that does that make you feel uncomfortable when people recognize you no i you know I've, I've really enjoyed the journeyman thing and normally by the time people figure out who i am or what they saw me in, i'm a mile down the road so it's never really been a thing where uh, you know i get assaulted at the supermarket being famous looks like kind of a drag you know i'm good friends with some people who are quite famous and what they go through just in order to go out and have lunch or go to the supermarket or whatever you know it just looks like a hassle and people really lack boundaries and want to sort of be all up in their business and it's 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 not okay now with your acting because you are taller Mm -hmm. and it's been known to a lot of people a lot of actors are very short like i i've had a few actors come into the studio here and they play a very imposing figure on tv right and then and i'm 510 and so i mean i'm average but then they come in and and they're shorter than you and you go holy crap wait wait a second it's like 
Because on TV, they look like 6'1". Have you ever run into problems because you are so tall and you're thin? It's not like... It's different if you're a big, lurky, right, tall guy, big jack, guy, because yeah. then they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. He's a bodyguard or whatever. Right. But have you ever run into things where you sit there and go, wait, this is just not going to work? Because- I've, I've had that many times when you go in to test for things and, you know, they realize, okay, the star is Michael J. Fox back in the day or whatever. And I just they're never going to cast me next to that dude, you know? I remember one time working on a, a fashion show down at the Calmart building in downtown Los Angeles, and Robert Urich was the host. Bobby Urich, Dan Tana, you know? Right, and okay. I, I, I was, he's he was a legend. There. He was totally and well-deserved. I mean, fantastic actor and really cool guy. But I remember walking out on the stage wearing whatever getup they had me dressed in. And he was out on the far end of the of the of the catwalk in a tuxedo with a microphone. And as I was walking towards him, I realized he was getting smaller. I was like, oh, my goodness, he's tiny. I thought he was at least six, three because he always played this ass kicking, strapping dude. And uh, he's significantly smaller than I thought he was. I, so I thought he was big too. Yeah, no, I always thought he was as well. And then that moment, I was like, am I hallucinating? What's going on here? And uh, as I got close, I realized, you know, he's probably five, eight-ish maybe wow, on a good funny. day. And uh, it was funny working on JAG because uh, working opposite David James Elliott because he's six, three and a half or something like that. And uh, he, he noticed me when I first walked on the set as a guest star and we're shooting this scene where we're in a confrontation and uh, I noticed that he was kind of trying to be taller than I was, trying to sort of scoot himself up the hill a little bit so he could look down on me as he's used to doing. And it was funny. I walked over. And I said, how tall are you anyway, bro? He says, six, three and a half. And I looked at him. I said, oh, six, three and a half is not quite as tall as it used to be. And I walked away. <laughs> well, you're, you're, on, you're on Jag, but before that, you were on Pensacola Wings of Gold. Uh-huh. Now, were, did, was there a run where you were getting, did they want you to play military? Or, I mean, what was, I mean... I think partly it's my size, partly it's the fact that my ears stick out. I look like a Norman Rockwell character of some sort. And uh, Stu Siegel had produced uh, Thunderboat Row with Stephen J. Cannell and then gone on to produce Silk Stockings. But yeah, I, I, I've worn a lot of uniforms. And sometimes that's a blessing. And other times, you know, you find that the writing kind of goes away because they expect you to be cop number one, two or three. Now, Jag, Jag was a very popular show. Mark Harmon was on that. And uh, right, Mark Harmon was on that, wasn't he? No, it was David James Elliott. And uh, I think he was, uh, Mark Harmon was in the spinoff or he might have done spin-off. some I think he was on a few of them. Right. So, and that was a big show. But now I look at your IMDb. It's weird because you played Clark Palmer, but then one episode you played Tom Boone. Yeah, that was a weird thing where they had sort of done a flashback sequence back, way back in time and done a Christmas show, and so we all got to play different roles. Okay, because that's wondering, because now, well, back then, like, if you auditioned for a show, you could sit there and you could be on that show again, like Law & Order SVU, uh, Leslie Neal, or Diane Neal. In one episode, she played, like, this girl and her friends got the stripper drunk and they molested him, okay? That mm-hmm. character. But then years later, she's on and she's playing the... ADA and it's like, well, wait a second. And so, and I, I me, mean, because I'm an idiot, Savannah, stuff like that, I notice it. But back then, you you could play different roles on shows and no one really noticed. Now you can't, right? It's like if you go into a show, you're basically, you're, you, you know, you're Clark Palmer. You'd have to be Clark Palmer, you know. Yeah, you're not going to show up as anything else unless there's some sort of oddball flashback type of thing where you get to be someone else. But now I think you're you're more locked in than you were. Even if you grew a beard or gained 50 pounds or whatever, people are going to peg you. And, you know, and there's a lot of people that really scrutinize that sort of thing. Now, when you did that show, Jag, did you know it would recur a few times or did you, was, did you just come on as a one-on or did you not know what was going to happen? I came in as a one-on and then the oil and water chemistry between my, my character and David James Elliott's character was really fun, really good to play. And we had a great time with it. 
And uh, that's it just expanded and it kept I think I ended up doing seven or eight over the course of a couple of years. But that was a real experience where, you know, I'd been doing a lot of movies. And, you know, if you if you made a, a movie that people saw, you know, you're lucky if two or three million people would see it. But, you know, right after the first Jag episode aired, I was at the Ralph's Market on Miracle Mile. And a lady came up to me and said, you were so mean to him. And I was like, what, what's she talking about? Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, and then you realize when you're on a show that's popular, you know, 12 million people a week watch it. And that's a whole different ball of wax. And I say, I mean, you're working on TV and now you did, you did Transformers. Mm-hmm. Now that was, now you've been to TV. How does it work? We'll go from TV to movie. Does your agent sit there? Cause you were doing a lot of episodic. Mm-hmm. And then does your agent say, Hey, Here's a movie because I know. I mean, this was a few years ago. It was different. You know, people didn't go back and forth. But is is it easy to go back and forth? And do you feel it's a different? Is there more? I'm sure there's more downtime in a movie than a TV show. Do you do you feel a difference when you go into the set? Definitely, yeah. You know, for instance, working on Hard Rain, which was a huge budget action thing with Christian Slater, Morgan Freeman, Minnie Driver, Randy Quaid, a bunch of great people. But man, we were in overtime before we get our first shot off because there were so many logistical things about the operation. You know, we shot that in the hangar where they sh- where they uh, built the B-1 bomber out in Palmdale. And inside that hangar, which is five acres indoors, they built an above ground pool that held five million gallons of water. And inside that, they built a life-size replica of the downtown of Huntingburg, Indiana. So there's just such huge money being thrown at it and paying your overtime is not one of their concerns. Just getting the shots is their concern. And a lot of times you go on a TV show, you're back in your car, you know, after you shoot two scenes so fast, you're like, wait, I forgot to have breakfast, you know? Well, it's funny. My girlfriend's been doing extra work. She has a, she doesn't want to act. She has a side business where she public speaks, but she's like, she wanted to get some extra cash. So she's been doing extra work for a lot. She's been getting a ton of work for TV shows. I actually went with her. I did one the other day. I've never done extra work. She said, sign up. I said, it would be fun. And it was weird because I, I went on set and it was Sunday and you, we, our call time was like 6.45 and you sit around and you eat your breakfast. And then we sit there and it's, we go to like nine o'clock to shoot the scene and we're background and it's for two hours. And then we just sat around till seven. And I'm like, I'm like, this is, I'm like, you know what I said? I was thinking to myself, I said, I said, here's the deal. We're getting paid with, I mean, it's extras don't get paid a lot, but once after the eight hours, you get the double time. And then after 10, you get golden time. And I'm sitting there going, there's people who are making the same money who are busting their ass at a Kmart or busting their ass in a warehouse and they're dealing with stuff. Here, we're just sitting there talking. She's reading a book. I'm on my tablet playing games and I'm going, you know, this is, I mean, it's weird when you think about what goes on for the sea. Like for you with that movie, it's you sit there, it's what goes on. They get you there and it's sometimes you think, why do they, like they could have left us go at like three, but I guess they worry. I mean, she was the one show, it was like a 17 hour shoot and it was like, she goes, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, all right. You know, she's like, well, you know, make money. You know, it's, it's, but it's just weird how much money they spend. Like, I guess when you don't worry about your budget, you just say the hell with it. And it must be great, you know, for like back then when you're sitting there going, okay, well, you're going to get overtime. And then probably you as an actor, you're going, because what else are you going to do? You're going to, you have to come back to the set. I mean, yeah, you probably had a trailer. Yeah. So it's like, you're not in a holding room. So it must be great. You're just chilling in your trailer, watching TV and stuff Watch like that. Watch a lot of movies. You can take up Sudoku, Needlepoint, Words with Friends, whatever it is. Are yeah, you a Sudoku you, player? I'm not. I'm not. I can't I'm figure it out. I'm a Words with Friends addict. Okay. So my, she just started playing that. So you're, are you, are you good at it? I'm pretty good. Okay. I'm pretty good. You know, I've got a, I've got a, I've picked sort of matches with people from coast to coast. So at uh, any hour of the day, I've got people that are waking up, having their coffee and want to play. So. I've been playing, I started playing trivia crack. Have you ever seen that? 
I've played it with my daughter. It's fun. It's really fun. And the thing is, though, it's like like last night, a guy I haven't seen forever played. and But also, sometimes they sit there and they get everything right, and then the game's over, and you're like, I didn't even get to go. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. So you did after Transformers. Now you you did Trooper Tom Bergen. Well, you did you did something on Shameless too. I did. Yeah. Now that, that must have been that looks like it'd just be a fun show to shoot on, just because William H Macy just looks like the coolest cat. He is the coolest cat, plain and simple. You know, there's they don't get any cooler than that. You know, and he started out as a carpenter, I think, in Illinois or something, and uh, you know now look at him. He's one of the hugest <laughs> stars going, and just. What a role for him to to be on there. But it was paradise. Really, really fun character to play this sort of perverted army colonel. And uh, I was hoping that that would go more and more and more. What characters do you like to play? I mean, you've played a lot of authority. Yeah. And and do you enjoy that? Or would you like to sit there and... uh, play you know just like a goofball i mean have you ever played a doctor if you're i mean would you ever want to play a doctor nobody's ever found me believable as a doctor which i guess i understand i don't know i can see it <laughs> my brother's a doctor i guess i could hit him up for notes exactly but uh you know I, I i love playing heavies i love playing clark palmer he was so obnoxious and so mean yet still really smart and articulate uh a lot of times i've found when you put on a uniform a lot of times the writing goes away uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, a lot of times they're not really interested in you. You know, what's your backstory? What's your family life? What's your emotional burden? Any of that kind of thing. You're there to sort of enforce the law and you spread them. Give me your license and registration kind of things. You know, there's a lot of writing like that. So when you have a role where you are in uniform, but you still get to have a lot of emotional depth or turmoil, conflict, that is much more engaging and much more fun as an actor. Was that like Tom Bergen and Justified? Or was that just a sort of a... Because first of all, what what year did you do? What year was that of Justified? I was in the second season and part of the third. Okay, now, the one thing... because Well, Nick Searcy, then you yes. know him. And then I've also had Jerry Burns, who's been on. And right. John Kapolis did a little bit. And Justified, I've heard, was just such a great shoot to shoot on. And there's so much talent that was on that show. I mean, you know... Phenomenal. Timothy Elephant's just amazing. Goggins. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I, I remember him. Yeah, Marla Martindale. I mean, it was an unbelievable period there. That's when they won the Peabody Award during that second season. And that's said, you, you have a Peabody? I did not receive one. Why I, not? That's like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should try to track yeah, that down. Because Searcy has one. Seriously, we and him <laughs> yeah. talking about that. How did Justify come about? And uh, did you know, because that's one of those things, as you know, I talked to Nick about it too. There's certain shows that have just a uh, a following where it's cool to follow. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I watched the first two seasons of Justified. Then it, once you get behind in a season, you're screwed. Yeah, it like, can run away on you. It's yeah. like there's so many. But that's one of those shows, that show, and even like uh, Ray Donovan. There's different shows that have like that following. I mean, when you were on Desperate Housewives for an episode, which that also had one of those cult. Now, did you, did a lot of people after Desperate Housewives come up and recognize you? Because, a couple people did, yeah. Because there's so many, like, that, that was like the rage. Like, there wasn't Cougars before that show came on. True, true. So how did Justify come about? And did you think, you know, you would be on for a while? Or once again, was that a, did you think it would be a one and off? Because I get that a lot. A lot of times you guys go in for one, you know, as you call yourself journeyman, I call them character actors, you guys, mm-hmm. you go in for like one episode and then you hit it off with someone or you know someone or they like you right. and then it recurs. Now, when you came off of the audition for Justified, what did you think it was going to be? Well, I went in and read for Cami Patton and I'd heard that they, you know, they said you might get to do as many as five. And frankly, I would have jumped at the opportunity just to do one. And, uh, you know, I just shut down my classic car business over by Paramount Pictures, and I really wanted to get back and be more focused as an actor. That's what I came to do. And uh, I went on that audition, and when I booked it, it was 
just paradise to get onto that set and uh you know and then it just sort of developed and you know the character they you know they developed the character a, a fair amount and it was fun to show up at crime scenes with timothy oliphant and uh and unravel what was going on with the hillbillies and there's such a specific tone to that show i always wanted to defer to tim because he really he just mastered that show and really you know there's such an interesting thing about you know there's violence there's drugs there's drinking and at the same time there's this unbelievable humor laced throughout it so right. i always you know that's i really really you know looked to tim to be like hey this is your show tell me about the tone of this scene what do you foresee and uh it was just a special special thing now did you get killed how did you get how did you get i it? did you know it was funny because uh you know i was into my third season and it was at a point where I'd worked enough with Tim that he was bringing me into the meetings before we'd shoot and be like, hey, we need to rework the scene or we need to rewrite this. This needs to be funnier. And it was so much fun to get, you know, he'd give me the little finger sign, get over here. And we'd meet with the writers and, and run by some ideas with them. So it was so fun to have that collaborative effort on the, on the set right before we'd shoot. And so I thought, wow, this is really going someplace. You know, this is really, they're really going to dig into my character. And pretty soon I'm going to have a wife and, you know, there's going to be this backstory and they're going to be visiting me at home. And, and then I got the call from Graham Yost at home where he said, this is the hard part of having a show like this. I said, oh man, you're going to kill me, aren't you? And he said, I have to. That must be so weird. I mean, it's just because you sit there, it's like the call. It's like, you know, it's like in sports, you know, when the coach calls, you're the, you're the final cut. And, and yeah, it must be something because you're getting, it's, you're getting a good relationship with this crew. I'm sure you go back and then, you know, you weren't on every week. No. So when you come back, you're like, Hey, all right. You know, Hey, cause right. they're always, you know, you're a nice guy. They're probably going, Hey, you know, yeah, good. You know, if you were drugged, you're probably like, kill him, kill him. But they're probably like, Oh, he's great to see you. You know? And you get that. Yeah, you know, that allegiance is just that niceness, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like you die. Now, how when you when you get the call that you're going to be killed? Now, when you go into that last episode, I would think it would. I mean, does the crew know? I mean, before yeah. or do they know? And I mean, it must be weird when you're walking by the crew and they're like, "Oh God." Yeah, Poor no, everybody knew, you know, because everybody get the scripts about a right. week, about a week in advance. And so I, when I walked onto the set for that final episode, I had a lot of people wordlessly just come over and give me a hug. And so yeah, it's just it's so funny. And how did you get killed? I got shot by Jeff, Ol uh, Tim Oliphant's dad. Okay, now did they sh did they film that? Uh -huh. Now is that the first time you've died on scene? No, I've I've gotten killed plenty because uh, that's kind of what happens to you when. You know, when you are a character actor or journeyman and, uh, you know, if you go on to shows and guest star, frequently you're getting shot or blown up or bumped on the head or thrown overboard or somehow uh, disposed of. What are some of the ways you've gotten killed and how did they do it? Because I know Nick said where he got like blown up. Like some people say different things where uh, uh, Mark Moses one and said he got stabbed in the neck, but it bled too much and they had to redo it. Is there any times that you, you got killed? They had to kill you a few times or have you ever gotten the, the splibs? Because I heard they hurt. Yeah, I've, I've been squibbed a bunch of times. I get squibbed a lot in hard rain. Wayne Duvall kills me in that with a hunting rifle right in the guts. Now, did and, that hurt? No, not okay. really. And then, uh, you know, a lot of that technology has come a very, very, very long way. And then, uh, yeah, I got shot to pieces in uh, Justified. I think the worst way I've ever died was in the horror movie the Paramount made called Body Parts, where I was actually ripped. My legs were ripped off of my body. Now, how do they do that? I mean, is, is it CGI? Or, I mean, or how do, and how do you react? Like, because you think, I mean... No matter what, no matter how good of an actor you are, I don't think anyone could actually, no matter what your imagination is to get you in character, I don't personally think anyone could ever fathom 
what it would feel like to have your legs ripped off. I mean, you know, I sit there, I prick my finger or you get a paper cut. You're like, shit, you know, but to get your, actually your legs and you're a tall guy. So that's a long ass leg <laughs> to get that ripped off. I mean, how do you act that? How did you sit there and put your mind going, I have to show, and you don't want to be over the top because then it right. looks campy. Yeah. How do you sit there and get into that mode to sit there and go, I'm going to, I got to act like my legs are ripped off. Right. Well, in that one, actually they, they came and found my dead body with the legs okay. off. So I didn't have to <laughs> do that moment. But it's funny when you do get shot, you know, a lot of, you know, when the when the guys, the special effects guys are putting the squibs on your body, they're, you know, it, it's natural to want to clutch your hands over where you've been shot. And they're like, don't do that because then it ruins the effect. Okay. And so you're, you know, you're trying to be a team player with those guys as well. Don't, you know, in the moment, you're like, don't slap your hands over the over your guts where you just got shot. But uh it's it's nuts, you know, and working on, with body parts in particular, that was the first time I ever had to do prosthetics and a body cast that they turned, you know, into a mold and all this different stuff. And, you know, and then they built my, my body down into a mattress so that they could have the fake torso on the mattress with the legs ripped off, you know, and there's these grown men giggling and putting hamburger and fake blood all over the place. It's pretty creepy. And it's, it's, it's a long process for prosthetics. Very long process. And I did that, you know, I've had to do that a couple of times where they've had, you know, casts or molds either of my head. We did that on the event for NBC and, uh, Stephen Beathers, one of the best FX guys in the business. Uh, we were there for hours and hours where, you know, I had to shave my head and then they packed all this gold. You're breathing through straws. Do you get claustrophobic at all? I mean, it must be weird because it's you're entrapped. Even if someone who doesn't get claustrophobic, just breathing through a straw and just... I mean, it, yeah. does it, do you get, because you can't AD, move, I Yeah, guess. I've got ADHD, so that sort of thing is really not my forte. You know, I like to be moving around yeah. and doing stuff. So breathing <laughs> through a straw and sitting still for five hours straight is not great for me. And, uh, you know, when we did body parts, they had to do the whole body cast, had to be all shaved. And then there I was in some basement in Toronto in the middle of January having this process done with ice cold plaster of Paris being put on me and just trying not to shudder and shake because it was like my body temperature was dropping. But it it can be quite excruciating. Okay, now you start on Grand Floods. Right. Okay, now it's in its coming up on its third season? We've shot our third season. Uh, Netflix came to us, well, came to the producers. I like to say it's us because it feels like a real team uh, uh, to, to release the show. And so now all three seasons are available on Netflix. Okay, so I can go home today and watch. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Now, how did that series come about? And now you, is that what you shot in Utah? Yes, that's what we okay. shoot in Salt Lake City and surrounding. Now, aren't you going back to Utah soon? I certainly hope to be. I'm waiting. I'm, you know, maybe when I get out of here, my phone will ring and they'll say, "Hey, we're doing season four. Let's okay. Go. So, so what's what's could I, I always wonder because like for a Netflix show, because uh -huh. as a you know, what is the like in TV, regular TV, on network and stuff, you have the seasons. Like if it's AMC or HBO, they'll go, "Oh, we're going to take off two years. We'll come right back." But like right. regular, like you know, like tonight, major crimes and or whatever murder and first comes out next week so they have their their schedule is there a different schedule when it comes to netflix is it like do you sit there do you shoot a season because it all comes out at once so it doesn't make i'm sure you all shoot it before it comes out because i'm sure once you it has to be all shot because right. every season comes out now what's the downtime like with your first season like what was the downtime between the first season and the second season? We had about eight months in between, you okay. know, and then we initially we were shooting four episodes and then we'd take a few months off and then do four more episodes. And then just this past fall, we went back and shot eight and that was our season three. And that's with Parker Posey and George Newbern and Christopher Lloyd and whatnot. And now that Netflix, you know, Netflix came to the producers to pick up the show and I'm not sure how that influences the schedule or anything like that. I'm just hoping that there's enthusiasm and we can get back to it. What I'm was it airing before? 
it was primarily on uh, BYU's own network. Okay. You know, and they, you know, they own their own network. A lot of people don't realize that they even have the cable channel, BYU TV. But if you go through, you know, Clear Channel, DirecTV, AT&T U-verse, a lot. Oh, yeah, I found it. It's up, you know, it's 592 or whatever, way up there somewhere. And it's is it, there. Is it, well, you're in Burbank. Do you have Charter? No, I have uh, AT&T U-verse. So do I. It's so crazy. You sit there and you're like... Well, look what all these channels and you sit there and go, wait a second. It's like, I have 37 Armenian channels, you know, and, and you sit there and go, and nowhere else in the country, except, especially in Burbank and Glendale, yeah. but it's just weird. You look at, and you sit there and, and I, I want well, to say my girlfriend, I'm going to say, why don't we just get, get rid of a lot of these things? Cause we have Netflix, you know, why don't we just, I mean, keep regular. I hate people go, oh, I don't watch TV at all. I have no TV. It's like, well, you have to have, you know, sports center. I need that stuff. Yeah. But so now how did Granite Flats come apart? How did that come about for you? Did you know, did you know it was going to be on the, BYU channel? Did you know it was just, or were you just going for a different project or how did it happen? I knew very little about it going in. It actually started out as an audition for my daughter who does, she's done some commercials and stuff and she's what we call a hybrid, half Asian, half white. Okay. And uh, the, the lead girl role on that show is is that, you know, half Asian, half white. And uh, anyway, so Ruby, my daughter was called in to, to go in for the part. And when I got there, I realized the casting director is a woman named Dory Zuckerman who uh, actually put me in body parts okay. uh, back in the day. And so I just wanted to stick my head in and say hi. And then both my son and I ended up reading for the show as well. My son has worked on the show. Now, is he young? Uh, he's a little bit older. He's 15. He'll be Okay, so he soon. plays like a teen. Okay. Right. But this was, you know, a good three and a half, four years ago uh, when it started. Anyway, so I ended up uh, getting the show, and it's just been a great thing to work on. So, yeah, you did the one season. I did the one season. You know, initially I was hired to do the pilot. And, again, you don't know what's, what's going to happen. And, and frankly – you know, when I found out it was BYU and BYU TV, I was like, well, is anybody going to watch this? And is it going to be for some form of propaganda? You know, what's Yeah, because you have to go and you have to think about that. Because it's funny, when I went to that central casting to sign up to do the extra stuff, you know, I was sitting there and a girl was walking around giving out the, to these young kids. These well, They were like 18 in front of me. And she was giving them these pamphlets about, you know, oh, come to the Scientologist, you know, the 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 teach deck, the class. Oh, we have an acting class. And I'm sitting there and it says, you know, and she's like, yeah, then you can come earlier and you can hang out and you can take this test. And it's always the stress test. And I'm yeah. sitting there going, I'm like, and I, to me, I guess just because maybe I'm older, but even when I was younger, I was always skeptical. Yeah. And I would sit there, if I saw Scientology, I'd be like, and I'm, I'm nothing against Scientologists, but it's, it's not for me. Right. You know, and, yeah. but that's a funny thing. It's like, and for this, with the BYU, you're probably thinking, well, wait a second, you know, who's going to watch it too? And I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and you never know quite what you're getting into. I mean, there's that funny story of the, uh, I think there was a movie that was called The Innocence of Muhammad and people thought they were just going over to do, to Egypt to do some sort of Bible story. And then after they'd shot it, it was all overdubbed and they realized that they right. were part of a real like anti-Islam <laughs> propaganda thing. So, you know, I never grew up with any organized religion. I've got, Me either, you know, so. and, and in my family, you know, I've got all different people of all different faiths and all different colors and stuff. But, uh, you know, I was just concerned about that. I wanted to be sensitive to that and be aware of it, if nothing else. And also, you know, when you hear that a, a university is putting up the, the money for the production, you think, well, well, is this a student film? Are there going to be kids sticking the boom mic into the shot? Or is this a real professional gig? And I, I just didn't know. Excuse me. I didn't know until I got there. And that's when I realized, hey, these are real trucks. This is a real crew. This is a real production. And, you know, our, our director of uh, photography is a guy named Reed Smoot. He's one of the top IMAX guys on the planet. Our Steadicam guy shot Batman. There's just a bunch of super talented people that moved out there to Utah 
to do and you know and work in production on series back when they used to do Touched by an Angel out there, they okay. did Everwood out there. There's a lot of people that jettisoned their homes here for the cost of living and you know bought three bedroom pads out there in Park City and just maintained a little apartment here to uh, you know just keep their hand in the business. So the first season's done. And then you find out about the second season. Now, right. first, did you have to live? What do you do when you go to Utah? Like, did you have to rent a place, or I mean, how, how long are you there for? No, they put you up. You know, they, they're really nice about accommodating us and giving us cars to drive and stuff like that. So it's you know, it's it's like any other gig in that respect, and per diem and stuff. So it's really kind of a paid vacation, particularly when you're doing something that you enjoy so much. And how long were you there the first year? I was there for three months on and off. Okay. And so I would go back and forth and you know check in with my kids uh, here in LA and. Uh, you know, and then this past fall, you know, we were doing eight in a row and I really only came back a couple of times, partly because I enjoy Salt Lake City so much and there's so much to do there. And I know there's a lot of people that have a stigma about the Salt Lake City. I heard it's beautiful. I heard it's it's unbelievable and it's unbelievably hip. You would not believe the restaurants, the cocktails, the whole scene. There's the good com- there's some comedy stuff. There's, I there's mean, everything's going on there. And not to mention, you know, all the recreational stuff you can do there. Mountain biking, fishing, skiing, snowboarding, you name it. There's just a ton to do, and it's just great. It moves at a slower pace in Los Angeles, and that suits my 50-year-old self. Now, what was it like having your son on set? Was that just different? I mean, because you, you live – I mean, it's, oh. is it is it was it great, or were you sitting there going – I mean, and did, are you fine with him and your daughter acting? Have you encouraged them? Or I'm fine with – my son's really a vocalist. He's a singer. He's an unbelievable lead singer for a band. And uh, What are they called? Mooster. Mooster? Mooster. Okay. Yeah, formerly five-way log jam. And but, what kind of music do they play? Uh, they play real indie rock, and they okay. write all their own stuff. For a while, when they started out, they were doing some covers. They did Jet, Are You Gonna Be My Girl, and okay. stuff like that. And so, you know, they go and play a benefit and be like, wow, these kids really rock. But now they morphed away from that and started writing their own material, and they're really good. They've played the Whiskey. They've played downtown at the Redwood, stuff like that. Really, really fun to watch. Anyway, I do encourage them to do pretty much whatever they want to do. My daughter's more of a fine artist, a, a drawer and a painter. And my son's a vocalist. He goes to Loxa. And uh, anyway, it was tough having him on set. Not because I wasn't excited for him. Maybe I was too excited. You know, he just didn't. He'd never had that experience of walking up, hitting a mark and delivering lines and and doing the whole thing. And, you know, as a dad, you're always trying to impart, you know, you're always trying to impart your experience or give guidance. But I just I knew I had to be hands off and I knew I had to trust our crew to direct him and the director to direct him. I had to go back to my trailer and eat a one pound bag of Twizzlers until it was over. That's crazy. That's so funny. <laughs> now, though, the cool thing is you must be excited with the Granite Flats book with the fact that it's going on Netflix because, you know, are, are, are you a member of Netflix? I am. Okay. Well, you always know when a new series comes on Netflix, you know, when you go to your, because I always, I, I watch a lot of documentaries on Netflix and I go through and I always go to the new thing, but whenever there's a new series coming on, it pops right up. Yeah, and that must be great because now people want to see stuff. They like a lot of people may have not heard of Granite Flats. A lot of people haven't, and I knew of it because Brian McNamara was on it because I didn't know we talked about it. I said okay, and he said it was in a BYU TV and stuff like that. But now with Netflix, that opens up a whole new viewer, and for an actor, it must be exciting because not only are people watching it, Mm -hmm. but Everyone in the industry is going to check out Netflix because Netflix is a hip thing. Right. Just like you know when when Amazon Prime with uh, Transparent, I just watch Bosch. You right. know, you know, you want to see something different because network shows you have to watch commercials, you have to watch this, you right. want to hear a curse here and there, you want to hear something different, or you just see something that's different. It's it's not as you know the content's controlled. Right. That must be exciting for you because I mean there could be casting directors or people that 
Well, you don't don't know of your work who see it and will go, oh, who's that guy? I hope so, because it's been such a great role for me to play, you know, at this age and to have all this emotional turmoil. And, you know, this guy, my character, Herschel Jenkins, comes back from Korea with what we would now identify as post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, which is such a, a prevalent thing now with so many of our people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and other points around the world. And so to have that and also he deals with alcoholism and he deals with being a single dad and, and being a dad, period. And you know, he's completely shut down romantically and emotionally and he's just sabotaged most of his relationships. And then he slowly starts to try to rebuild these relationships and these things and become more integrated into his life. And for me, having gone through a bunch of stuff in my career and in my personal life, it's just a great, great opportunity to play a lot of things that I've gone through. Now, have you gotten email or tweets or or stuff on Facebook from people who watch the show because it is a BYU network. I'm sure it's a, some of it's a different viewing audience. I think it's more, more a sympathetic viewing audience. I think because they're probably somewhat religious and they're seeing a character rebuilding himself. So that's a good thing. Have you gotten any emails or stuff or messages from people about your role? Yeah, you know, I, I do. I've got a fair number of, of friends on Facebook and whatnot. I don't tweet. I tweeted for like five days and I just, I don't get it. I don't quite have that uh I don't know what it takes to be able to just vomit up your ideas onto right. the onto the interweb or whatever, you know, with that sort of regularity. But I do have a lot of people that have have, have really enjoyed the role of it and and really find my character to be, you know, one of the more interesting characters on the show because he does go through so much and he goes through such a transformation and he is struggling so hard. And and that's a nice feeling, you know. That's nice to have that sort of compliment. We have about six minutes left. I want to find out about the the classic car thing. Okay. Now, how did how did that? That's like it's such a different business. Were you always a car fan? Or I've been a car fan since I was tiny, and uh, really by the time I think I was about four years old, I could name every car, every make on the road. And my mom would look at me just bewildered when we'd be on a car trip. She'd be like, "How, how do you do that?" And I said, "Their faces," you know. And so I could just always always love cars, and I always loved the freedom of a road trip. And, uh, you know, growing up in New England, everything gets all rusty and falls apart. So there aren't really a lot of classic cars on the road. So when I came out here and started making my own money, like I said, when you go to your mailbox and there'd be five grand from the commercials that you shot, I, I mean, I would pull people over at stoplights, like, hey, nice car, get out, you know, and buy it out from under them. And at a certain point when I was living with Dewey Nicks up in Beechwood Canyon, I think I had six or seven cars just outside and some motorcycles too. Would you work on them? Yeah. I've, you know, I'm, I'm nobody's mechanic, really. I, that's really not my thing. When I had my shop, I had a very, very talented friend who's a real like hot rod whisperer who unbelievable mechanic and actor named Jeff Jensen. And uh, so we were a good team. You know, I was more into the sales. I was more into the the social aspect of it. And he was the real fine tuning and stuff like that. But we, you know, we took cars all the way apart and put them all the way back together and made some really beautiful cars for people. So you make the car. Now, would people request the car or would they just come in and shop and buy the car? A lot of times it would be something that, hey, you know, we, we've got this car that's sitting. My grandfather passed away. We want to get it back on the road, something like that. Or or a couple of times people came to me and said, hey, Pete, listen, I want to give my wife a perfect 55 T-Bird convertible for our anniversary i say great no problem start bringing us bags of money did you ever meet leno i have met leno because of uh, i used to have a really funny little 67 Datsun super sport sedan which is a very rare little car half japanese with an italian body and i had dropped off my kids at temple beth hillel 
to go to preschool there and I was getting back onto the 101 and Jay Leno came ripping up next to me in this car called an Ariel Atom, which is really like a carbon fire indie carbon fiber indie car. And he came ripping up next to me. He said, what year is that thing? And, and, uh, so we started shouting back and forth and I, I met him at the spring fling, which is out of Balboa park. It's a Mopar car show. He's, he's a really cool ambassador for the hobby. And he's just, I met him at, um, <clears throat> at, uh, Pinocchio's uh-huh. in Burbank and, I was like, yeah, can I get a picture? And I said, I used to do comedy at the Comedy Works. Yeah, the Comedy Works, and Jimmy Tyune. And I'm now, and I, he played there years, and I played there like 88, 89, 90. Uh-huh. He played there, you know, <clears throat> back, and he still remembered doing, yeah, the Tyune guy. He's a, uh, yeah, he's above the Middle East restaurant. And he was just nice. I'm like, how does he remember that? Because yeah. he's played so many gigs in his life, and just hosting the Tonight Show has met so many people. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now, do you ever go to Bob's Big Boys to check of out course. the Of course. I live really close to Bob's, and so I frequently, even if I'm just going out to shop at Trader Joe's on a Friday late afternoon, I'll just sort of do a slow cruise through just to see what's going on. You know, and I still in, am involved in classic car sales. A lot of people come to me just because of the shop that I had and because of the reputation that I have now. They call me Cal Worthington's evil twin. All right. Because I still sell cars all over the world. I'm, send, I'm sending a Vista Cruiser wagon to Kuwait tomorrow. Uh, I've got, you know, a big Cadillac convertible for sale and and some other things. A lot of times it's more of a consignment type of thing where people are just like, hey, I, I want to sell this. I don't know how to sell it. What do I do? Now, do you drive classic car sales? Do you still own some? I don't right now. Right yeah. now, I, drive, I you know, I had a Bentley Brooklyn's for a while and it was just like a money sucking monster and uh, driving my kids around as much as I do and commuting as much as I do. I went out, I sold that Bentley Brooklyn's and I walked onto the lot at Toyota and saw one of those Prius V wagons. I said, okay, that one. And it's just been really fun to not take care of a car. That must be good. It's amazing. And get a million miles a gallon and I can put seven surfboards on the roof and pack my kids and some fried chicken in there and go surfing. See, that's the way. That's like why I always drive my girlfriend crazy because I sit there and go, I'm going to buy a Fiero because that was my first car out of college. (laughs) And she's like, you better. And and I'm like, and that's one of those cars that you never see them when I think they all died. I I was lucky. Like most of them would get the one headlight stuck up. Yeah, yeah. But I always said I'm legally blind in this eye. So I think God said, we're going to keep his headlights working because we already screwed them the first time. (laughs) Now you surf a lot. How often do you go surfing? Uh, I try to surf a couple times a week when I'm here in California. You know, it depends on the waves and, and, and my schedule, of course. But it's just it's something that's just so great to do. It gives you a completely different perspective on life here. And when you feel overwhelmed or you feel like it's just too crazy, it's just it's great just to paddle out. You never regret going. Where's your number one place to surf? I surf at El Porto quite a bit. And I now, like where's surf, that? Uh, El- Manhattan Beach, just okay. south of the El Segundo Jetty, just south of uh, LAX and all that. And that's just a really safe, clean beach. The water water quality tends to be the best in Santa Monica Bay. That's where my kids learn to surf. And it's just really easy and very accessible. Are you the tallest surfer out there? Uh, probably one of them. But I surf, you know, my 10-footer is my, my shortboard. I have a 13-footer as well, wow. which I can, you know, take my daughter and I can go on it at the same time. So they surf and they're acting, and that's cool. And now, do you have a, do you have any musical talent? I mean, or zero? zero. Isn't that crazy? Because oh, nobody wants to hear me sing. I cannot carry a tune. It's horrendous. God, that's so funny. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. Oh man, it's it been fun. my pleasure. It's fun, thank and you so uh, much. I, I sit there. I got I got to check. I want to I want to check out. You know, now I'm going to look at these cars because I I know nothing about cars, but that's so interesting. And now, yeah, uh, you don't tweet. I don't tweet. Yeah. I, I do my little Facebook broadcast when things are going well. I never broadcast when things are going poorly. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a tweeter. And is this, this is, uh, just, okay, so you don't, but you have your, your car, how can people find out about your car stuff? Can they just, can they just put Peter, Ner, Peter Mernick and 
Google it or how do they do that? Yeah, they can Google me or send me a message via Facebook or, you know, somebody somewhere probably has my phone number. I don't want to put it on the air. But, no, don't. Uh, <laughs> it's M-U-R-N-I-K, people. It's M-U-R-N-I-K. Anyway, so I want to thank you for coming on. And check him out on Facebook. Uh, check out his work. Check out Ground and Flats if you have Netflix. It's coming up. So just check that stuff out. And uh, follow me on Twitter. I do tweet. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet jokes all the time. I just tweet what's going on. Uh, Instagram, Cooper Talk 1. I put a lot of... Uh, cooking up there the cooking stuff i do which we'll talk oh, about well, uh my internet i'll tell you about it. it's uh, my my website's coopertalk.net uh there's a 375 episodes up there email me at cooper coopertalk.net and go to my new website stopthesalt.com that's stopthesalt.com it's my uh low sodium for one without uh, low sodium for one low sodium cooking for one without killing yourself as you know it was three years ago i got a, i was in a hospital three years ago it's the first time i really missed doing a show here and uh i had to change my whole diet so it's a it's 125 recipes of low sodium easy recipes no pictures you don't have to worry about looking and getting intimidated no list of spices so go to coopertalk.net and buy it from me I'll autograph it and I make more money. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. Just type in Steve Cooper, stop the salt, but buy it from me. I'll sign it and give me the money. So I want to thank Peter Burnick. Mernick. I, might, I always hate this last minute. I'm Steve <laughs> Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend.